If you have Bibles with you, please open up to Acts chapter 7. I'm uh, teaching a series of messages titled God's Unusual Ways. And I've got two objectives with this series. Number one, it is my purpose to stretch your God box. We all have them. I have a God box. You have a God box. It's, it's the box of our expectations of how God works and operates in our lives. And those boxes are usually formed by a few things. It's greatly impacted by the culture that we live in um, and the, the spiritual slash religious training that um, we've had as we've grown up you know, in church life. Um, he's bigger than the box. Uh, throughout my journey, I have discovered repeatedly that he blows up my box, and, I, and so I get a little bit bigger box, and then he blows up that box. And he just likes to sh- show me how big he is. And so... Part of being free is that we get to go outside our God box. And one of the ways that we can do that, and what might make it less scary uh, for you, is if you could see in Scripture how God works outside the box. Um, and so that's, that's part of it. Um, God often works beyond the boundaries of our Western worldview, logical, intellectual, empirical, evidential, tactical mindset. That's what we expect. Um, But he's not limited to those things at all. The second second objective is to let you see that God uses regular, ordinary, everyday people just like you and me. We see these men and women as the heroes of the Bible. But we get to see the end of their story. From the beginning of the story, these were regular guys. These These are people just like us. They're heroes because God intersected their life and things changed. But before that, man, they're just normal, normal folk. You know, Moses was a fugitive, became a deliverer. Gideon was a coward, became a conqueror. Abraham was an old man who became the father of nations. David was a teenager who defeated a giant and became a king. Peter was a fisherman who found himself in Jesus' inner circle. Amazing. Just regular guys. Regular folk like you and me. Just a very quick review. In the first series on the message, uh, on the, uh, in the first message in the series, I laid a biblical foundation from Isaiah uh, 55, 8 and 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, another way that we could say that is God operates outside our box. He operates outside the way that we operate, and he thinks differently than we operate. Much higher, much superior, better way than we do. So part of our journey in our relationship with him is to align, is to tune our thoughts and ways with his. In the second message, we looked in Moses, the unusual ways that God operated in his life, particularly the parting of the Red Sea. And I told you that sometimes God's ways will offend our sense of logic, reason, understanding, and fairness. His ways are not our ways. We looked at Gideon. We looked at Gideon's backstory, his calling, Gideon's army, and that bigger isn't always better in God's kingdom. We looked at Abraham. God made an extraordinary promise to Abraham. And God fulfilled that promise only after 
It was beyond Abraham and Sarah's, Sarah's strength and power to bring it to pass. It was when they were powerless, when it was impossible, when they did not have the physical capability, they did not have the necessary resources to make it happen, that's when God fulfilled the promise. His ways are not our ways. We looked at David. God chose David when even his own family didn't consider him worthy enough to be invited to the meeting. God chose David. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. David in battle with Goliath. Not one of us here would have picked a 15-year-old boy to stand up you know, with a slingshot to go against this gigantic, well-equipped champion warrior. None of us would have done it. None of us would have sent our 15-year-old son out there. God's ways are not our ways. Last week we looked at Peter. Peter's calling. Peter, the restoration of Peter. The front and back end of Peter's story are just like, like these bookends with Jesus um, that involved this huge, miraculous catch of fish. Jesus spoke Peter's language. Jesus had three fishermen in his inner circle. Jesus picked Peter when we never would. And he reinstates Peter after his betrayal. Peter becomes the, the point man. After, after Christ's ascension, Peter becomes the point man. If in your greatest hour, your number one employee betrays you harshly, when you go away, would you put him in charge of the family business? Not one of us would have done it that way. But this is who Jesus picked. <laughs> he goes on to become a powerful apostolic leader in the early church. God's ways are not our ways. Look what he did with these people. Look who he chose. Just imagine what he would do with you. So today, in the seventh in the series, I want to look at the life of Paul. A little bit of Paul's backstory. How he received this calling from God. So, if you're open to Acts chapter 7, please follow along as I begin reading at verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. So Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that you give us insights into the life of Paul today that will impact us in our personal journey with you. So here, in Acts chapter 7, this is the first mention of Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as Paul, in the New Testament. So, 
Paul's backstory. The stoning of Stephen is a, is a good place to start. So let me make a few comments on verses 57 and 58. It says, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coat at the feet of a young man named Saul. Some of this next section of my message was inspired by uh, some of the work of uh, David Guzik, a commentator from Blue Letter Bible. One of my uh, go-to sources when I'm studying scripture. So when Stephen declared that he, had, that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, it was just too much for the Sanhedrin. They reacted quickly, violently, and together as a group. Um, when Jesus, before this same body of men, declared that he would sit at the right hand of God, they had the same reaction and sealed his death. Jesus' death is a blasphemer. You can read about that in Matthew 26, verses 64 to 66. For Stephen to suggest that the crucified Jesus stood in a position of authority at the right hand of God must have ranked as blasphemy for them at the highest level. They knew that it was common understanding that if a man had been crucified, that he, when he died, it was under a divine curse. Stephen is blowing up their God box. And they're not happy about it at all. They're having a horrible reaction to it. I kind of know what that's like sometimes. I've never been stoned, but I've seen some strong reactions. Verse 57 says that this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed him. These were distinguished older men acting in this way. The reaction of the Sanhedrin seems extreme. But it's typical, it's typical of those rejecting God and lost in what else could we call it but a spiritual insanity. They wail in agony, cover their ears at the revelation of God. Do you get that? Stephen's having a vision. He's looking up and he sees the heavens open. He sees Jesus. And all he does is tell them the vision that he's seen. And they have this harsh, angry, violent reaction to the revelation of God. What a dangerous thing it is to be religious apart from relationship with Christ. What a dangerous thing. Can you see how dangerous it is? To be religious apart from real relationship with Christ. This stoning fulfilled what Jesus warned about in John 16, 2-3. He says, yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because... They have not known the Father or me. Wow. They thought they were defending God's standard. They thought they were doing God's will. And they weren't. I think that we're susceptible to, the, to, to that same dilemma. We're not immune from it. We'd be foolish to think that we were. So the scripture says that they rushed at him. The word 
uh, haromo in the Greek there. It's the same word used to describe the mad rush of the herd of swine into the sea in Mark 15.3. This was an out-of-control mob rushing at Stephen. The extent of their rage is shown by their execution of Stephen, which, by the way, was done without regard for Roman law, um, and it was performed according uh, to the traditions of Jewish stoning. Let me, let me lay out for you what that process looks like. Some of the research I found said that this is how it's described. When the trial is finished, I don't know that Stephen had much of a trial here, but when the trial is finished, a man convicted is brought out to be stoned. At ten cubits from the place of stoning, they say to him, Confess, for it is the custom of all for it is the custom of all about to be put to death to make confession, and everyone who confesses has a share in the age to come. So they give the, them this last you know, moment of opportunity. At few, four cubits from the place of stoning, the criminal is stripped, uh, naked, dropped from the place of stoning, which was twice the height of a man. So he's down in a pit. Do you get this? A pit that might be you know, 10 or 12 feet uh, uh, in depth. One witness pushes the criminal from behind so that he falls face forward. He is then turned over on his back, and if he dies from the fall, this is sufficient. I guess a 12-foot fall, if somebody pushed you, it could be, that could be fatal, possible. You go down face first. So if he, you know, if he falls and he dies from the fall, that's sufficient. If not, the second witness takes a stone and drops it on his heart. If this causes death, then that's sufficient. If not, he is stoned by, the, by all the congregation of Israel. Scripture doesn't account that they took any of these uh, traditional steps. It sounds like they were in a frenzy and just threw him down. They took him out probably to this place of stone and just let him have it. He was so overwrought with emotion. You ever met somebody who's just so angry because they disagree with you theologically? Have you ever had that experience? I've had that experience. I've had that experience a lot in my life where people just get furious. I'm like, dude, we just disagree. <laughs> Let's have a beer. <laughs> it's going to be okay. I'll buy. <laughs> No joke. I've had, I've had heathens treat me better than some Christians who just disagree with me theologically. Guys, you see the tattoos I got? I cannot tell you how much grief I got from Christians because I decided to get tattooed. Right? So they would, they would quote to me, I think it's, I think, I think it's Leviticus 19.28 or 28.19, one or the other, where it says you shall not get tattoos on your body. I was like, okay. But you know the verse before it says you shouldn't cut your hair or your beard. And dude, you're looking pretty styling today, you know? So how can you <laughs> put on me verse uh, 28 when you're not going to live by verse 27? You know, let's have a conversation. I'll buy the second round. But it just, it just cut you off, you know, for a couple of ounces of ink. I'm thinking, all men will know you are my disciples if you're tattooless. No. <laughs> We love one another. I can love you without your tattoos. 
can you love me with mine? I'm a pretty nice guy. My, my wife will cook a good meal. <laughs> <laughs> but talk about fury. This is a really great picture of when you wander outside of somebody else's God box, it will absolutely infuriate them. This is, this is a crazed crowd. This is dangerous. And so the scripture goes on to say, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. I want you to know, Saul stood there as a supervisor of this operation, as a member of the Sanhedrin. He had also, he approved of Stephen's execution. Now some people have misunderstood young man. Young man literally means this. It means a man in his prime. It certainly does not mean that Saul wasn't old enough to be a member of the Sanhedrin. Matter of fact, in Acts 26.10, Paul says, I cast my vote against them. And plain indication that he had a vote as a member of the Sanhedrin. All this to say that Saul wasn't some little kid observing from the fringe of this crazed crowd. I've heard some people say that. That's not the case. He was a full-fledged active participant. He helped kill Stephen. And he's proud of it. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 states it plainly. And, Paul, and Saul approved of their killing him. Acts 1.8 And Saul approved of their killing him. The word approval there indicates not just that he agreed, but that he sanctioned. You understand? So the stoning of Stephen at the end of chapter 7, it ignites persecution throughout the church. begins at, at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. On that day, the stoning of Stephen was like lighting the match. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if a member of our church was killed for their faith violently by an angry mob? What impact would that have on us on a group? We would grieve as a, as a community, as one we would grieve. Our hearts would be broken. That's their heart for their, their friend Stephen. They mourn deeply for him, Scripture says. Verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Wow, what a powerful verse. Who is this Saul Tosses? Who is this guy? Well, he's an Israelite, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, a Roman citizen by birthright. He studied at the school of Gamaliel, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law in Jerusalem. Saul himself was a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a zealous persecutor of the church. In his own words, this is how he describes himself in Acts chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up to this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law by our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priests and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them 
to the associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. He wasn't satisfied just persecuting the Christians in town. He's going out of town to get more. This guy is intense. He goes on, Paul in, uh, in, in Philippians 3 describes himself further. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to, be, to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Saul is a bad dude. Mm. He zealously and passionately hates the followers of Jesus. You know, he's, he's a terrorist. Paul, he, he's a religious terrorist. He's the New Testament's version of Osama bin Laden. Because people disagree with his theological perspective, he feels justified. He feels empowered. He thinks he's on a mission from God to kill those people. This is a bad dude. You would not want Solitarsis at your house for Sunday dinner. You wouldn't want your kids to hang around Solitarsis. He's a religious fanatic who believes doing God's will by killing those who believe differently he believes he's doing God's will by killing those who believe differently than he does. And so all this brings us to Acts chapter 9. So this, that's some of Saul's backstory. Do you get a picture of who this guy is? It's not a pretty picture. Not if you're a Christian, it's not a pretty picture. So this brings us to, to his calling in the ministry. God's ways. Man, God's ways are not our ways. This is the beginning of the, of the story of Saul's calling in. In Acts 9. Have you noticed in the last few weeks I'm using a lot of scripture? I want you to see. It's in the book. I'm reading large sections of scripture so you can see it in its context. That I'm not taking, I'm not trying to twist the word, I'm trying to look at it for what it actually says. I want you to see that it's in the book. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. While Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. This is how the story of his calling starts. This is the state that he's in. Right? He's already persecuted as many as he can find in town. He's on his way out of town to Damascus. And he is, this. what a description. Breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that he... If he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he answers, who are you, Lord? And he gets the response that must have shaken him to the very core of his being. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand 
into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So get this. Get this story. Jesus interrupts Paul, or at this point Saul tosses. He interrupts him in the middle of his sin, in the middle of his murderous rage to kill Christians. Jesus interrupts Saul to call him into ministry. That's when he picks him. God's ways are not our ways. Paul hears, Paul has a divine visitation and hears the audible voice of God. Jesus interrupts Paul's murderous threats against the disciples. Not to strike him with lightning until he's a small pile of burnt cinders on the road to Damascus. That might have been some of my plan. Ooh, he lies Saul tosses. He made mistakes. But to call him into apostolic ministry. A few verses later, in verse 15, it says, God says of Saul, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. God chose this man. God's qualifications in ministry are very different than ours. Paul's ministry goes on to impact the world to this very day. God's ways are not our ways. Paul had a profound impact on the early church. He authored much of the New Testament, 13 to 27 books are attributed to him. He's a main figure in the second half of Acts of the Apostles. He authored Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon. And some church historians make a strong case for for St. Paul's authorship of the book of Hebrews, but that's debatable. But it kind of sounds like his writing when you read it. But they don't know for sure. He goes on three missionary journeys, spreads the gospel to Asia Minor and Europe. You can read about that in Acts 13 and 14, the first missionary journey. The second one is Acts 15 to 18, and the third is Acts 18 to 20. He has significant, profound influence on the early direction of the church. There was, there was some big questions going on in the, in the early days about Gentiles coming in and being allowed to be part of this, this whole new move of God. Initially, it was for Hebrews only. Paul was convinced it was for the Gentiles. And so there was a huge issue. Acts chapter 15, they called the Council of Jerusalem concerning Gentile circumcision. It was this, it's, the, it's the conflict between law and grace. It, was rage, it rages today, <laughs> and it was raging all the way back then. It's true. Galatians 2.11 records um, over the same issue concerning the treatment of the Gentiles. Paul has a confrontation with Peter. Boy, these are two heavyweights. Knocking heads, disagreeing over the theological things. God's way is not always. Look at this. This is... Paul describes himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He's the Jew of Jews. And he becomes the champion of the Gentiles. Who would have thought it? <laughs> who, who would have picked Saul for this job? God's ways are not our ways. And Saul suffers for his faith in his own words. Listen to what he went through in his own words from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It says five times... I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Boy, he suffered for his faith, didn't he? Profoundly. What an impact God must have had on him. He suffers all that for the group that not long before, he's on a mission to kill them. And then he dies as a martyr. Scripture doesn't state how how Paul dies, but church history uh, says that he was beheaded um, at the command of Nero as a prisoner, while a prisoner in Rome. By all accounts, St. Paul is a champion of the faith. So what application of this can we make for ourselves? How does, does this apply to our understanding of God's unusual ways? In so many ways. But let me offer just three observations as I close. First observation is this. That not one of us would have picked Saul Tarsus. We never would have chosen him. He never would have been on the list to be chosen. We could have had a list of 10,000 names. And he wouldn't even be ranked as the last choice on the list. We never would have considered him. Yet God sovereignly picked the greatest enemy of the church to become one of its greatest champions. (laughs) God's ways are not our ways. It's almost as if God was just showing off. Look what I can do. (laughs) Second observation. No one is beyond redemption. No one. If Paul isn't beyond redemption, no one's beyond it. Think of the least likely person you know for redemption, for faith in God. Is he running around the island killing people? Probably not. Killing Christians? Probably not. God redeemed St. Paul. God can redeem that person too. What does this mean for us? There's hope for that person. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. You cannot go beyond the grasp and reach of his love and his mercy and his grace. Which brings me to the third point. Third observation. Grace is that good. It really, it's that amazing. It's that incredible. Paul writes his epistles and he makes the argument for grace. He has to be considering his own journey. Looking at where he was and what he became, became and how it happened. It wasn't on the basis of his righteousness. God interrupted his murderous, sinful endeavors to call him. Not the way we think it would happen. Grace is that amazing. I have to think that John Newton, when he wrote Amazing Grace, identified with St. Paul 
as he penned verse 1. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. I was blind. But now I see. God is so good. His grace is that amazing. No one is beyond redemption. His ways are not our ways. So let me end with Paul's words from Philippians chapter 3. Having heard about Paul's life, listen to his heart and these powerful words. He says, but whatever was gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, to become like him in his death, and to somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenly in Christ Jesus. Powerful words. What an amazing life. Let's pray. Lord, I find hope. I find encouragement from the the life of St. Paul. But more than that, from, from the way you interacted in him, what you did with him. This unlikely choice. Lord, it encourages me. Lord, I pray that you would encourage my friends today. I ask that you put hope in them for tomorrow. Lord, I ask that you would build them up. Lord, I pray that you would grant a revelation of of just how amazing your grace actually is. Lord, I pray that you would stretch our God boxes. Lord, just blow them up. That we could see you for who you really are. Do it, Lord. Lord, we ask to live our lives in a way that's your ways, that are so much higher than our ways, that you would change our thinking, that we would think like you think, that much higher level. Come and be God in our midst. Come and have your way in our midst. Have your way, Lord, in Charlottetown Community Church. Have your way, oh God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.